a formal welcome to Journey of the Soul. This is our third lesson, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to this very powerful course and uh, certainly very, very, very poignant and, and, uh, and heartfelt conversation. There's nothing theoretical about these classes, about the series. You know, sometimes we talk theory about the concepts of, concept of things. This course is all about life, real life. Nothing more true to life than, uh, than the topics that we are talking about. Life, death, loss, mourning, comfort, as we'll see tonight. Before we begin, I'd like to uh, once again acknowledge our core sponsors, our very generous core sponsors, um, Dr. Joy Maxey who has sponsored this course in honor of uh, the loving memory of her dear father, Elaine Alexander, who has sponsored this course in honor of the dear and loving memory of her husband, and Eve Bogan, who has, donated, has sponsored this course in honor of her dear mother. In addition, I would like to mention uh, a very special blessing and prayer for the peace and and health and well-being of um, Steve How of Steve's dad, Steve Howard's dad, Matalipa Halevi Ben Dvora, that indeed he should have all the blessings that he needs. And we were very fortunate, all of us here. If you were at the first class, you know that we all had the fortune of hearing him speak um, at that first class. And uh, we wish Steve and we wish Steve's dad and the entire mishpacha only only blessings. And, um, and may Hashem indeed watch over everybody. Let's begin today's class. I want to begin with um, one of my uh, patented stories, which you know usually has a punchline, but we always present it as a story. So Jerry, don't forget to be ready with uh, the, the punctuation to the story. So they, they tell the story about a, uh, a fellow who passes away, old man Goldberg passes away, and the rabbi is out of town. So they bring in a young rabbi from the next town over to do the funeral. And the rabbi, who doesn't really know the person, he doesn't know the deceased, the rabbi, this young rabbi from the next town, starts eulogizing him. And he says, Mr. Goldberg was a respected man in the community. Somebody shouts from the crowd, no, he wasn't. He was a ganif. You know what a ganif is? <laughs> he was a thief. Um, all right, Rabbi switches gears. He's going to like typical things that you say. All right, he switches gears. He says, old man Goldberg, he certainly loved his faith, his Judaism. Somebody else cries out from the crowd. No, he didn't. He couldn't care less about Judaism. All right. Tries again. A third, a third tactic. Uh, old man Goldberg cared about his family. Somebody else pipes up, no, he didn't. He was a terrible husband and father. Anyway, so finally the rabbi is, is exasperated. He doesn't know what to say, so he says, is there anything good to say about him? Somebody else pipes up from the crowd, yeah, his brother was voice. There you go. All right, classic, yeah, classic, uh, classic Jewish humor. And... You know, on some level, directly or indirectly, it's, um, it speaks to today's topic, which of course is not a laughing matter. It's a, it's a very serious topic. 
I don't know if it's serious. I mean, it is serious, but it's real. It's more, more than any other adjective that I could give. It's a real topic. In our first two sessions of this series, we focused on the journey of the soul, which makes sense. That's the name of the course. We focused on the journey of the soul. We, we explored where, what the soul is, where it comes from, how it's born, how it integrates into the body, what it feels like for the soul to come down to earth, what it feels like for the soul to leave the earth, the process of the soul uncoupling and transitioning away from the body. We spoke about definitions of life and death. All of that we focused on in the first two sessions, indeed, the journey of the soul. Today, we're going to shift perspectives and look not so closely at the experience of the soul of the one who passes away, but rather we're going to look at the experience of those whom the soul has left behind. In other words, we're not focusing as much, although we will certainly talk about this as well, we're not focusing as much on the experience of the soul that is transitioning away from this earth, from this body, but we're more looking at the perspective, the vantage point of we who are left behind, who experience the loss and the pain. There's nothing as painful as the loss of a loved one. And the truth in life is, you and I know this, we all know this to be true, every individual processes loss in a different way. No two people are alike. No two experiences of loss are alike. Some people seem, and again, appearances are, are, are only that, but some people seem to bounce back quicker. Some people seem to take more time. It's an individual experience experienced by individuals. There's no normal. Everyone experiences grief and the, and the, and the, and the pain of loss differently. But what's universal? What's universal across the board is that the loss of a loved one profoundly, profoundly affects the loved ones who are left behind, which makes tonight's topic really important. Tonight's topic is about the Jewish perspective on loss, mourning, grieving, comfort, and healing. Specifically, throughout the session tonight, we're going to look at four questions. I'll phrase them now as questions, but they will become four topics and areas of discussion throughout tonight's conversation. But I'm going to pose them right now in the opening so you can kind of have a bit of an outline of where we're going. I'll pose it as four questions. Question number one, why do we mourn? I'm going to explain the question and we'll explore the answer from a Jewish perspective. But question number one is, why do we mourn loss? Question two, how ought we mourn and find comfort? Question number three, how might we deal with chronic grief? And question number four is, what can we do to bring comfort and a measure of, 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 of healing to others who have experienced loss? So again, in short, the four questions, 
Not those four questions. But tonight's four questions are, number one, why do we mourn? Number two, how ought we mourn in a way that leads to finding comfort? Number three, how do we deal with chronic grief if we find ourselves stuck and unable to, to find that comfort? And number four, how do we help others? Or can we help others? How to be there for others in their experience of loss. And of course, as we do throughout this, throughout this series, as we will do throughout the series, we are going to explore these topics specifically through the unique lens of Jewish teachings as well as Jewish Kabbalistic teachings. This is a very unique perspective, a very unique um, uh, vantage point. We all have our own feelings. We all have our own perceptions, our own personalities. Every individual's experience is unique. But Judaism brings incredible wisdom and incredible sensitivity to these topics, which we will explore tonight. All of this that I said thus far is by way of introduction to set the stage for our conversation tonight. So let's begin with our first area of conversation, which I posed as a question. And that question is, why do we mourn? Now, it sounds like a ridiculous question. It sounds like, what well, kind of, why do we mourn? Because uh, we lost a loved one. Why wouldn't we mourn? What, what does that even mean? I know it seems like a ridiculous question. It seems like it has no basis, but hear me out. Hear me out. And let me explain why I'm asking the question. I'm asking the question based on the Jewish perspective that we've shared throughout the first two sessions of this series. We've shared a perspective on life and death that is so important, but also relevant to our opening question. And the perspective is, we said this all the way at the beginning of our first class, and that is that bodies, may, at a certain point in time, they may cease to function and be animated, but life doesn't end. Because life is the soul, and the soul is life, and the soul is divine life, and like its origin, an eternal God, the soul as well, does not die. The soul continues to live on, albeit in a different state, in a transition state, sans body, but the soul continues to live. That's what we established all the way at the beginning of our first class. And throughout the, fir the first two sessions, we've developed this idea. And we've, explained, we've shared the idea that not only do souls live, but souls live eternally. And not only do they live eternally, but souls, as we said last week, when a soul departs from the body, its full measure of spirit is accessed. Whereas the ruach of the soul is previously trapped, if you will, captured within the confines of a physical body so that we can only experience our own soul through our physical senses, which constitutes a limitation. When the soul leaves the body, by contrast, its full, its full spiritual reality and potential is opened up. And so based on these ideas, we might ask the question, is mourning therefore appropriate? After all, could we not consider this to be an upgrade for the soul? The soul is not going anywhere. 
the soul, I'm, it's leaving the body, but the soul is not, is not disappearing. It's not uh, being eliminated, God forbid. The soul is still around. And it's unleashed. It's full power. It's full brilliance is unleashed. So perhaps there's no room for mourning. Truth is, this is not some, some, some crazy idea that I'm coming up with tonight. Ancient philosophers and men who consider themselves spiritual individuals actually bantered around this idea. So, you may know this. There is a text that I don't... Um, I, I don't know that we need to read it. It's text one in your books. I, at this point, I think all of you should have a book. If you still don't have a book, please don't put it in the chat. Please private message me or give me a phone call or send me an email after the class. And I'll make sure to, uh, to, to track that down and see what's going on. But at this point, everybody should have a book. In your textbooks, this would be text number three. Um, it's about Socrates, and it's, it's, a, it's a philosophical text. But in that text, I'll give you a, a bit of a, a summary of the text as I open it up on my end. Um, Socrates essentially is talking about how individuals who have the spirit of philosophy should be willing to die. Right? People that, that, that understand philosophy, that are philosophical by nature, people who are not just lowly beings, but sophisticated, enlightened individuals should not fear death. On the contrary, perhaps should even seek death. This was a vantage point shared by Socrates at the end of his life about seeking death. And the way it's understood, the way it's been understood in philosophical circles is, again, that a true philosopher might, will not be afraid of death, might even seek death, because then the spirit, right, this, the higher spirit is unshackled from the body. And again, it would seem that as the Greek philosophers ponder this idea, perhaps Judaism is likewise aligned with this philosophy, with this, with this position, perspective, that we ought not mourn the loss of a loved one. We might think that, but let me categorically share with you tonight that that is not the Jewish position. I know I asked it as a question because I think it's important to understand that one could ask a question and might argue, well, maybe mourning is not appropriate because we do believe in the eternality of the soul and that the soul is elevated to, on some level, a higher stature. Nonetheless, despite all of this, it is absolutely obligatory in Jewish law, and it's absolutely mandated from a Jewish perspective to mourn the loss of a loved one. Let's first establish this as a fact in Judaism, and then we'll get to the philosophy behind it and the rationale behind it. We're going to begin our class with text number four. I know, we're skipping the first three texts. Don't worry. We're, we're making sure to hit all, all that we need to hit for this conversation. I'm going to share my screen as I do in the classes. I know that you have your own books. I'm, going, I'm choosing to share my, my own screen just to make sure that we are all on the same page. Okay, I'm about to pull this up. Please bear with me. You should see this momentarily. Okay, it looks like I am a little bit advanced over here. Okay, let me scroll back to the correct text. 
We are almost there. Okay, oh, it's a short text. Text number four. Um, you know what, Jerry, you're, you're appearing first on my screen. Please, if you're up to it, please read text four from Rambam. Maimonides in the Laws of Mourning. Rambam says, thank you. Rambam says, it's a mitzvah aseh. It's a positive commandment. It's a biblical commandment to mourn the loss of our loved ones. Specifically, it's an obligation to mourn the loss of our immediate family. Next of kin, which we will explain what next of kin means uh, in halakhic terminology. So the first point that we need to make is, although one might conjure up a question based on our first two classes, although Greek philosophers have pondered and bantered about this idea of maybe not mourning death, nonetheless, in Judaism, clearly it's a halacha, a biblical obligation, like listening to the shofar in Rosh Hashanah, like eating matzah on, on, on Passover, it is a biblical commandment to mourn the death of our dearly departed. Why? The question is why, and we're going to explore this as we go through texts. So, to understand this, I want to present three major ideas on mourning. We've discussed many perspectives on the soul and the soul's reality, even outside a body, 100%. Now, tonight, we're going to explore major Jewish ideas on mourning. We're going to begin with text 5a. Um, let's ask, let us ask Dr. Maxi. Please read text 5a from Nachmanides, Ramban, in his commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. The Torah does not forbid us to weep in response to a death because it, because it is human nature to be moved to tears when separating from loved ones and at their journeying away, even if they are alive. Ramban says something. I'm going to keep the text up for a moment because, you know, I probably should magnify it a bit. I'm sorry that it was very small here on the, on the screen. Um, Nachmanani says something so powerful and so practical. He says that even when our relatives, our loved ones, our friends are alive, when they take leave from us, when they depart, when they go on vacation, when we're parting ways, whatever it is, we're moved to tears. We cry, we cry after holidays when, when family has to head home and, 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 and we leave each other. So if that's the case, even though they're still alive, even though they, they're not they're not gone, they're just not here, but that's still a valid reason to cry. How much more so? How much more so when it comes to death? There is no prohibition. Again, he's, he's, he is, he is um, kind of precluding the question of why mourn if we believe that the soul is still alive. He says it doesn't matter. You're taking leave. There's, there's some sort of distance or some sort of journey that's happening. When, when journeys happen, tears, tears come, and that's normal, and that's natural, and that is okay. So that's one perspective. The first perspective is that it's natural to feel a loss when the other journeys, even if they're still around. Let's look at another text. This is text 5b. Um, let's ask... Bev, Bev, are you up to reading text 5b? This is from Maimonides, from his guide for the perplexed. Thank you. 
Mourners find comfort in crying and in arousing their and in arousing their sorrow until their bodies are too weak to handle the intensity of their internal turmoil. Just as happy individuals find contentment in various forms of lighthearted activities. Thank you. Maimonides says that when a person has experienced loss, there is actually a comfort that comes in crying and in arousing sorrow until the body is, is, is filled with that grief that actually makes the body, actually helps the body heal. It, on some level, even if it's counterintuitive, it's the, 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 the mourning, the grief, the tears are actually on some level cathartic to the body and, and, and help, soothe the, uh, help soothe the loss. Therefore, he says, it's only natural and a healthy thing to mourn. Again, this is addressing the question, why do we mourn if we believe the soul lives on, if we believe that the soul is elevated to a higher spiritual stature, so why mourn? Point number one, because taking leave arouses sorrow. Number two, because mourning is actually beneficial to those who, are, who, are, who, who, who experience the loss. And finally, let's cite one more, under, one more perspective on this, which is text 5c. This is originating from the Radvas, uh, who lived, as you see there in the bio, 14, from 1479 to 1573. Um, Susan, are you, open to, are you open to reading from the screen? Yeah, if you're, only if you're open to it. No? Yes? Okay. Yeah, please uh, don't forget to unmute and, and if you don't mind jumping right in. One of this generation's greatest personalities failed to shed a single tear upon losing a son. Is this a praiseworthy reaction? Answer. Such behavior is offensive and objectionable. It demonstrates heartlessness. Stop moving. <laughs> I can't read it if you keep moving it. Sorry. Distasteful character and cruelty. This is the way of the philosophers who maintain that the world is without purpose. By contrast, we who have received the Torah are expected to believe and to realize that this world is of great value for those who properly utilize their time here and behave appropriately. It is through our actions in this world that we merit the world to come. Crying, mourning, <clears throat> and shedding tears over the passing of a relative, and especially for an honorable individual is the way of the pious, the prophets, and individuals renowned for their good deeds. It is not for naught that our sages instruct us to observe three days for weeping, seven for eulogies, and 30 for restrictions on wearing new clothing and getting haircuts, etc. If weeping were improper, the sages would not have instituted a three-day weeping period. In fact, the Torah emphasizes that our forefather Abraham came to eulogize Sarah and weep for her and that Jacob, King David, and countless individuals of similar caliber acted likewise. Thank you. Thank you. So this is from a responsa of the Radvaz, where he was asked the question about, uh, about crying. And, and it, the question is asked in a bit of a judgmental way, and, but the point stands, and, and, and it, it remains a, a very important idea, and an important idea in our conversation about grief and mourning. 
And really the Jewish perspective on grief and mourning is that it is not only understandable and not only human and natural and normal and cathartic, but it's actually, it's actually the right thing to do from a Jewish perspective. Because notwithstanding the eternality of the soul, notwithstanding the higher stature of the soul outside of the body, being able to, to, to experience its full brilliance, all of that aside, the reality is that the soul is no longer in a body and therefore no longer able to do a mitzvah in this world, no longer able to transform this world into a better place, into a, a place of light as opposed to darkness. The soul no longer has an opportunity to function in the body. So it is appropriate to mourn the loss of that soul being able to complete or, or fulfill its mission in its body. And that is a valid rationale, not only rationale, a valid context for mourning and, and for shedding tears. So yes, Judaism takes a nuanced approach. And the truth is we, we, we kind of brought out this balance in the first two sessions a little bit. But it's important, I think, at the beginning of today's class, session number three, to articulate it very clearly and very, very openly. Judaism mandates that we mourn. And you might say, well, why do you need a mandate? Isn't it natural and normal? Yes, it is. But at the same time, one might say, well, maybe Judaism's uh, approach is that the soul is in a better place. And although on some level one could argue that, the reality is that absence is painful, right? Even when people take leave and they're still alive, it's painful. The idea is that, uh, that mourning and crying is cathartic. And the third point is that the soul, on an objective level, no longer has the opportunity to fulfill its role here on earth in a body, and that is, a, uh, that is truly a great loss and truly deserving of, uh, of mourning and, uh, and shedding tears over. On a practical note, you may have noticed in text number four, in Maimonides, he, said it's a, he says it's a mitzvah, it's an obligation for the next of kin, to, to mourn the, the passing of a loved one, you might wonder, what is the definition of, of next of kin? I don't know if it's the colloquial definition, but what is the meaning of this in Jewish law as far as who's obligated? Not who can mourn, but who's obligated to mourn. I'm going to share my screen with you, and we're going to pull that up, and we'll look at it together. It's a, I believe it's a chart, uh, or I don't know, what, it's not a chart, it's a, a figure. Figure 3.1, page 92 in your books. I'm pulling it up on the screen. It says, the Torah rules of mourning, uh, the obligations are limited to the following next of kin. We have father and mother, sibling, spouse, and son and daughter. So essentially, it's a child, a child mourns parents, parents mourn a child, a sibling to a sibling, and a spouse to a spouse. Those are the specific close relatives, if you will, that are obligated in the Jewish laws, uh, in Judaism, to mourn. And again, I mean, mourning is, is, is natural and, and, and human. It's a part of sensit human sensitivity. But from, an, from a Jewish perspective, there's an obligation to mourn, and the obligation specifically falls on, on these immediate close relatives. So what's clear, what's abundantly clear from what we've described until now is that unlike some of the Greek philosophers, Judaism teaches about the profound loss of death and the necessity to mourn that loss. 
Which brings us to our second question. And that is, but how do we mourn? So mourning is, uh, is meant to happen, but how exactly do we mourn? Here again, Judaism is highly instructive. And although mourning might seem to come naturally, and, uh, and everyone experiences grief in their own way, Jewish law and Jewish thought actually guides us through our mourning process with specific observances, specific traditions that can profoundly be helpful and beneficial when we are experiencing the pain of loss. So it's really important to look at these Jewish traditions and, and see not only what they are, but the incredible depth, the incredible sensitivity, the incredible messages and, and, and uh, provisions for healing that are embedded in Jewish mourning observances. So what we're going to do now is look at another chart, graph, figure that details five um, specific mourning uh, observances, key morning observances. We're going to look at them together and go through them to get a basic understanding, and then we're going to jump in to their deeper meanings. I'm going to share, I just share my screen, and we're looking at key, again, this is page 93. If you have a book and you want to use that instead, you can. Figure 3.2, key Jewish morning observances. In other words, what does Jewish law say about how we mourn? Um, some of these we talked about last week, but not, we didn't, we spoke about it generally as far as like timelines and, and, and transitions. But today we're going to look, take a deeper dive and understand what exactly all of these um, observances are, uh, what, what they are and what they are about. And we'll see how that helps with the healing process in a moment. Um, okay, let's begin. This is very small text. So I'm going to make it a little bit larger. Um, the first observance, morning observance that we'll discuss is what's called Aninut. And that is, you see there's a little orange, uh, looks like a calendar box almost, or a calendar icon. And that is day one, when a person, when a loved one passes away. And that is this time period, the Aninut is, as you see, from the moment of passing until the interment, until the person is laid to rest. So immediate, now this is again only obligatory for immediate family, there is the status of Aninut and the associated laws and traditions. Let's read that. I'll read it out loud and you can all follow along. This is the most intense phase of mourning at this point. No attempt is even made to comfort or console the mourners, um, which is, I should stop here and mention, when a person um, loses a loved one until they've been laid to rest, we don't even offer them comfort. We don't even say, may you be comforted. It, it's, it's the pain, the loss is, is, the loss is, 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 is in front of us, so to speak, whether literally or figuratively. It's, 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 it's in front of us. And so it's not, it's not about com comfort or consolation. It's, 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 that, it's just feeling the, mo it's feeling the loss. It's not flipping it in any direction toward comfort or consolation. It's the full measure of, of the loss is felt. I'm going to continue inside in this paragraph that uh, as I move, the, you see my, my, the mouse hand moving over there. During this period, the next of kin are absolved from all positive mitzvot which means the obligations to do something such as prayer or put on tefillin. Nothing should detract or distract 
from the mourner's pain and their full attention to inter, um, intermittent arrangements. Sometime during the Aninut stage, the mourners tear their outer garment as a sign of mourning, which we will discuss in a few moments. So if you have a question about tearing the garment, we will talk about that, and it's a very important idea that we're going to share. But again, this is we're talking about stages and observances. So we have number one is the time period of Aninut. That's the, from, from the passing until the moment the, uh, the loved one is laid to rest. Then the Shiva begins. Right after burial, Shiva begins. And as you see on the calendar or the calendar icon, it designates it as seven. It's a span of seven days. So let's see what Shiva is. It's a seven-day mourning period commencing with interment. In other words, from the, from the day that a person is laid to rest, that is when the Shiva begins for the relatives. We'll talk about Shiva and the observances soon as well. So we're not going to do a deep dive into Shiva. There's a lot to talk about with regard to Shiva and, and the significance of it, but we just want to state it right now. The next category, and these are things we also spoke about last week, the next category or the next observance period is called Shaloshim, which is a 30-day mourning period that also commences with the interment. And that, that means after getting up from Shiva and resuming the everyday routines of life, certain mourning practices are continued until 30 days from the time of burial. These include refraining from wearing new clothes, getting a haircut or shaving, and participating in festive events. These are things that we don't do um, from really from the, from the beginning to the 30 days, but it, there's, Shiva has its own restrictions. So after Shiva, the next um, 23 days if, uh, or so would be part of that Shloshim. After the Shloshim continues the, the 12-month period, which begins, again, you count the 12 months from the burial. So let's, let's read this over here inside. A 12-month mourning period commencing with interment. Let's take a look at, what, at the description. After the passing of a parent, some of the Shloshim mourning practices, such as not participating in festive events, are continued by the children until 12 months have passed. It is customary for the mourners to keep a candle burning for the entire 12-month period. And of course, the way that's done is um, when the candle burns out, the custom is to light another candle and to keep it going for that 12-month period as an ongoing reminder of the soul of our dearly departed. And then, of course, the last, uh, the, the fifth and final observance that we'll mention right now as we begin this conversation is the idea of Yartzeit. Yartzeit is the anniversary, the annual anniversary of the passing. Um, and the description here says the anniversary of the death. Yartzeit is observed with the recitation of the Kaddish, additional Torah study, and other good deeds in the merit of and to bring merit to the deceased. And I should mention, um, I'm surprised it's not mentioned here. There's certainly a very specific and, and, and intentional practice of giving tzedakah, not just any mitzvah, but the mitzvah of tzedakah on the yard site of a loved one and especially a parent. So these are five stages. These are not stages. These are five observances, Jewish observances that pertain to mourning. There's the initial mourning stage, the shiva, the shloshim, the 12 months, and the yard site. And I'm going to stop sharing, and, and, and I'll give you some of my observances about this, and, or, or um, observations about this, and uh, let's discuss a few, I think, a few very salient points. Number one, um, and this is kind of a, as, as an introduction to what I'm about to say. 
And that is that every mitzvah, no matter what mitzvah it is, every mitzvah is divinely ordained, which means that it's got spiritual significance. At the same time, at the same time, every mitzvah has a physical benefit as well. And it's not that the mitzvah necessarily exists for the physical benefit. It might, just, it might be a spiritual activity at, at its core, but it will also have a physical upside as well. It will have a, it will have a tangible benefit. So that's the reason why I'm saying this. I'm not saying that the reason for these observances, the reason for these five stages, the aninut, the, um, the, shlo, the shiva, the shloshim, the 12 months, the yard site, I'm not saying that the reason for these are because of the benefit and the consolation and the healing that it brings to us who practice this very specific formula of Jewish mourning. But I'm not saying that's why we have these observances. But what I am about to say is that these observances definitely do have a positive impact and, or, or definitely can have a very positive and healing impact on the mourner, on the mourners who are mourning the loss of a, of a loved one. So is this the reason why we have these traditions? I can't go, for, go that far to say this is why we have them. But once we have them, there are, it's well documented. And this is not anecdotal, and it's not only rabbinic. You have in your books, so I'm not going to go through it tonight, deep research on this from, from leading scientists. There's a scientist in Israel who has studied this, leading research on the fact that Jewish mourning observances have a tangible positive effect on consolation and comfort for those that, 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 that go through the process. How and why? On, on the ground, let's speak about a few ideas, a few of the healing properties of these five observances that we spoke about. So number one, I mentioned instead, actually before I, I, I move further, I feel like I've, I've, I've presented a lot of ideas. I wanna check in because there's two, I always have two objectives when I teach. Number one is to understand what I'm saying and also to understand why I'm saying it. I wanna check in on both of these things. Is, is the, the flow of this class, does it make sense where we are up to right now? Yes? Yes. Okay. I'm getting. I'm getting nods. So that's a good thing. Um, we, sorry. Last week, didn't you say that you stopped saying the Kaddish in eleven months? Correct. Yeah, yeah. We mentioned Kaddish here in the context of yard site on the anniversary. The twelve months we said is is about. There are certain observances associated with the twelve months, but we didn't specifically mention Kaddish. We mentioned lighting a candle. The Kaddish was mentioned in the fifth observance, which was about the yard site. But yeah, Kaddish is recited for 11 months, not the full 12. Today, we're not, we're not going to do a, a deep dive into Kaddish. We're going to save that uh, for one of our subsequent lessons. I believe it is lesson five that we do a deep analysis of the Kaddish and understanding of what it is and what it means and, and why it's so hallowed and holy in our tradition. So we'll hold off on that conversation about Kaddish. But again, I, just, to, just to kind of fr again reframe where we're up to. We're discussing, we're discussing um, Jewish morning observances and to understand um, how we might mourn in a way that, 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 that leads to, to, uh, to, to healing and comfort. 
And I'm presenting the idea that Jewish tradition has a formula for mourning. It's part of our tradition. And although it's tradition, so it's a tradition, it's a mitzvah and a tradition, but it does have tangible benefits that have been studied. And I want to present a few of those here tonight for all of us to think about and, and, and perhaps benefit from. So here's, I'm going to mention a few points, I think four in total. Here's point number one. In the first stage of mourning, the first mourning observance that we spoke about was the, the, um, the stage of aninut, which is the immediate moment of the loss until our loved one is, uh, is laid to rest. And we said at that stage, there's no, no, no worry about any other mitzvah, no distractions. The sole focus is on oneself and the loved one that has passed away and, and laying them to rest and taking care of them and ourselves. It's not about, oh, I need to put on tefillin, I need to run to shul, nothing. No, no, nothing else other than focused on the, 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 the loss and, 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 and the dignity of bestowing, a, uh, um, laying our loved ones to rest. And I, it was mentioned in that little paragraph on the, the, the figure, the chart that we went through together, that it's customary for the next of kin, for the close relatives, to tear kriya, which means to tear the garment, an outer garment. Um, I want to speak about the significance of tearing the garment, of the, known as kriya, and, why that, and, and, and what that means on a, perhaps on a, on a psychological and emotional level. The kriya, tearing the garment, psychologically and emotionally helps a person, helps us fully accept the loss. Oftentimes, there's a, a natural reaction of not accepting, of, 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 of rejecting the loss, not, not, not coming to terms with it, certainly not right away. Maybe pretending it didn't happen, trying to, you know, uh, avoid, avoid, avoid the pain. Loss is real, and it's, it's profound, and the ripped garment really makes that truth a tangible reality. There's no avoiding it. It's a ripped garment, and it's actually, the custom is, it's an outer garment, right? And it's worn uh, for an amount of time. It's not worn once and taken off. It's worn uh, uh, um, throughout the Shiva as a reminder of, of the loss and, and the reality of that loss. I'm going to share my screen with you. And uh, we're going to look at text number six, which is the biblical, um, the biblical source for Kriya, for the tearing of the garments. Um, okay, let's pull this up. And... Yeah, I'm skipping this. This is the psychological work that's been done, which you can look at certainly after the class or at any point in time. Text number six, um, Mindy. Mindy, please read text number six. This is from Genesis, the story of Joseph. The brothers slaughtered a goat and dipped Joseph's tunic in its blood. They sent the colored tunic home, and the couriers brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Please identify whether or not it is your son's tunic. Jacob recognized it and exclaimed, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Jacob rent his garments, placed sackcloth on his loins, and mourned his son for many days. 
Thank you. So that last paragraph, that opening line, Jacob rent his garments, Vayikra Yaakov, Simlotav, he tore Kriya, he tore his clothes. And that's the first mention of Kriya. We have the mention of, of grief and crying with Abraham already, with Sarah's passing, his wife Sarah's passing. But here we have a biblical source, the idea of tearing one's garment. And again, it, it's, it's biblical, there's a source, it's tradition, but there's also a psychological and powerful emotional dimension to this as well, and that is that we, it's, it's a tangible expression of, of, of the stark reality of the loss. Here is how one great rabbi explains the tradition, and may, maybe it's going to explain what I've been trying to say in, in, uh, in, in, in clear terms. Um, Sylvia, are you up to reading text number seven? Uh, unmute yourself, please, and jump into the conversation. Okay. Rabbi Yaakov Haggis states that mourners are instructed to rend their garments as a method of distracting from and reducing their overwhelming grief. In my humble opinion, the opposite is true. Having to rend their garments brings mourners to tears and amplifies their pain. The goal is to actively encourage mourners to express their pain of the passing Thank you. Thank you for reading that. So this, this text from, the, uh, from Rabbi Yehuda Yash expresses something I think that's very powerful and something that we, um, that's, import, that's important to, to, to focus on for a moment. He cites another rabbi who says that the reason that we tear the clothing is to distract from the grief. Right? So instead of grieving over the loved one, now we have a ripped garment, so we're being distracted from the loss. And this rabbi says it's the opposite. It's not a distraction from the loss. It actually magnifies the loss. It amplifies the pain. And it's about opening up the channel of pain to experience the pain because it's only when we experience the pain and we feel the loss that we can then start the healing process. We're not going to start the healing process right away, but there's an importance to triggering the grief, and this is well documented in psychology, in the psychology of, of grieving. It, it's when a person bottles up the pain and closes it up and pushes it away, when we try not to deal with it, that only makes, this is true in, in everything, in every area of life. When we, when, we, when we avoid dealing with something, we don't make it better. And it doesn't, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't become better. It only becomes more and more magnified. It becomes more, more difficult to deal with. And certainly, if this is true in, um, in any area of life, certainly when it comes to grief and the pain of the loss of a loved one, when we avoid it, distract ourselves, push it away, I'll deal with it later, I'm fine. On a psychological and emotional level, let alone a spiritual level, it, it does ourselves a disservice. And so the Kriya is this incredible tradition that has, for those that have done it, for those that have witnessed it, we know that, that, that it, it opens, oftentimes it opens the flood, floodgate of tears. As we do the Kriya, it actually opens up the emotions 
that otherwise we might be trying to bottle up just because that's how sometimes we react by trying to bottle up emotions. But the Kriya is about opening up. It's, 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 it's raw and exposed and it's not, it's not hiding. It's a message that we're not hiding our emotions. We're not hiding, we're not covering, we're not you know, concealing or, or making it neat. Pain is real, pain is raw. Pain doesn't follow fault lines, doesn't follow a neat little seam. Right? It's not like you take out a stitch along a seam. That's not what pain is. Pain is real and pain comes at you when you expect it and when you don't expect it. And it's symbolized by the tearing of the garments. And it may sound crazy. Tearing a garment does all of that? It's well documented, both anecdotally as well as scientifically. Uh, through research, again, you can look through uh, those pages that we skipped over, those charts that we skipped over, Kriya can have that powerful effect to help open up and trigger the grief process. And it's not for the sake of triggering the grief process, although that itself is valuable to feel. As human beings, we tend to try not to feel, right? We tend, when we feel something uncomfortable, we tend to try to mask it with uh, things that, 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 that do away with our feelings, but that's not healthy. Healthy is to feel. And it's not just about feeling, but it's about when we trigger the grief process, then the rest of the process can continue, which is what comes after the intensity of the grief, which is the, uh, the beginning of the healing process. So that's just one thing that comes out from one part of one of the stages of, observ of, of, of mourning observances, the Anino stage in which the Kriya is done, the, the, rent, the, 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 the tearing of the clothing, one aspect of one of those five stages, and it has a, a, a very profound effect um, on us on many levels. I'm gonna, I want to mention a few more things a little bit more quickly that, that are takeaways from the, um, the, the Jewish morning observances. Number one, num number two, the first one was Kriya. So number two, the second point that I wanted to mention is regarding time. Um, time, T-I-M-E. After acknowledging the loss, Honestly, which has helped through the Kriya, the ripping of the garments. We're not pretending. It's, it's real. It's raw. It's exposed. After we acknowledge the loss, then we need to process the loss. And processing loss takes time. Right? Step one is acknowledging it. But then we have to process it. And one thing that anyone that's experienced loss knows, right? we know this, that processing loss takes time and sometimes takes a lot of time. Life does not go back to normal immediately. Life can't go back to normal because we are not back whatever normal is. We're, we're processing. We're processing something that's larger than any of us can wrap anything around, right? We're processing something that is, that is huge. It takes time. And Judaism is so sensitive to this. Jewish law and observance and practice, um, a, a tradition, tells us, take time. Shiva, Shloshim, seven days, 30 days, 12 months, ease back into things. Or not even back into things. That sounds too pragmatic and utilitarian. It's not about easing back into it. It's we need to give ourselves time to process our feelings 
and to process the loss. And everyone is going to process the loss differently. Don't feel rushed is Torah's message to us, is the Jewish message. Don't feel like you have to go back to the office. You have to be, go back to your productivity level. You have to go back to normal and to life as usual right away after the funeral, whatever it is. Take time. Everyone's different. Everyone needs different amounts of time. But allow yourself, we have to allow ourselves the time that we need to process and to begin the healing process. If we disrupt the healing process, if we don't allow it, doesn't mean that we're healed. It just means that now we have something to deal with that we've, again, pushed to the side or kicked down the road. It's, it's not dealing is, is not a healthy approach. And Judaism gently and lovingly guides us on this process of healing little by little. Another salient, I think, incredibly beautiful and powerful point regarding um, comfort and healing that comes out from the, morning, the Jewish uh, morning um, uh, observances is the idea that we're meant to start immediately. We're meant to start grieving right away. As we mentioned, I mentioned before about the Kriya, we're not meant to say, okay, you know what? I got to go back to work, but in a month or in a year or in, uh, you know, when I have time, I'll reflect on what's going on and I'll deal with it then. We're meant to start right away. The Aninut starts right away. The Shiva starts right after. Shloshim, 12 months. We're meant to get this, to, 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 to start the process immediately and to allow it to unfold. So we acknowledge the loss. We trigger the grief with the Kriya. We begin the process of grieving immediately and we give ourselves time to work through and to, to, um, to process our pain and our loss. The other point, this is my fourth point now, right? Kriya, healing time, and start the process as soon as possible or right away. The fourth point I want to mention is that, and, and this is underlying, as you saw, and we discussed last week as well, underlying this entire process is a notion of a trajectory toward healing and comfort. Not, and I have to be very clear here. This is not about, oh, everything's better. Like, you know, not, b- back to normal, everything's good. It's not like, like, it never, like, like the loss never happened. God forbid that we should be in that place. We should always feel that loss. But with feeling that loss, on a healthy level, on an ideal level, the goal is to move in a trajectory toward healing. Little by little, step by step, incrementally, but toward healing. And that's why we see that the Jewish morning rituals, right, are slowly alleviated as the time markers go on, which is a theme, again, we spoke about last week, on an empathy level with the soul's transition, we transition, but the point is here, there's a progression toward easing out of the grief and toward a place of comfort and consolation and toward healing. And that is ultimately what we might call, and this is a um, a designation that I make without judgment, this is what most of us would consider to be healthy. In other words, if, if, uh, if I asked you or if I asked myself, is it healthy? to be stuck in that original intensity of grief, or for myself, would it be healthier for me 
to still feel the loss and never be okay with the loss, but to get to a place where I am more functional and, and more at comfort with, 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 the, with, with the loss, etc., I would think that all of us, most of us certainly would say, yes, the healthier approach is to, to move to that place of comfort and consolation. And this is, this is the goal um, that, that the Jewish Morning Observances is trying to point us toward, the idea of easing up on these restrictions, easing up on these expressions of severe grief to kind of point us in the direction of the trajectory of healing. At the same time, we might ask the question, but how? If loss is so painful, and it's not an if question, it's the, uh, given that, that, that loss is so painful, how do we move toward healing? How do we move toward this, uh, toward this space of comfort? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat a few ideas that we've talked about in the first two lessons, um, maybe a bit of in a diff- with, with a different angle, but primarily uh, similar concepts that can help us move toward healing and toward comfort. And I'm going to mention three ideas. Number one, the soul is eternal and it never dies. And that as a meditation, right? My loved one, although their body is no longer with me, but the soul is with me. The soul is with us. The soul doesn't die. The soul is with us. As we said last week, even more spiritually with more intensity than ever before. And and that can help a person move toward move from the intensity of, of that you know, original state of grief to a state of, 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 of more comfort. The second point, which again we discussed last week, is the notion that our relationship with our loved ones and their souls continues on well after death. That our relationship is not limited to their, their soul through the body lens. We can relate pure soul to soul or even soul and body to soul. There is a way to relate, as we explored last week. The channel is love. And of course, when it comes to love, it's also what we're doing for the other, which there are, which there are things that we can do for our loved ones even after they're gone, spiritual things that we can do for them, which we have discussed and we, conti- we will continue to discuss in this course. Throughout this course, there's a way to keep the connection going. Again, this is a message that we explored before, but can, can provide consolation or elements of consolation and comfort as the mourning period um, continues. And finally, the notion that the soul is in a spiritually uplifted place and close with God, close with the source, that can also bring a measure of comfort. In addition to all of these themes that we've spoken about previously, there is one more thing, there's more, more than one more thing, but one more thing for right now that I'd like to introduce, and that is the traditional words of comfort that are recited to mourners. And this holds a powerful teaching for, uh, for our conversation. I'm going to share my screen with you and open up text number 9A. Text 9A. Steve Horowitz, will you please read text 9A? Don't forget to unmute yourself. This is coming from the standard Ashkenazic text for comforting mourners, traditionally recited or said to the mourners at the shiva, and actually right after the, uh, the funeral as well. May the omnipresent God console you, along with the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Thank you. Let's meditate for a moment, or let's focus on this simple 
when I say simple, not, not in an angry way, but, but this, this core line, this very fundamental line. May the omnipresent God, we refer to God as the omnipresent, which has a significance unto its own. May God console you along with the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. First, the first message we see here is that we tell the mourners that we are not consoling, we do not hold the power of consolation. Only God can console you. And only God can bring comfort to you. There's nothing that you and I could ever say to make loss go away. There's nothing that any human being could say that would make the, the gaping hole be filled. What we believe in is that God can bring comfort, God can take away, but also God can give, God can give comfort. Time doesn't heal, it's God that heals. And that's the first message. The first message is God brings healing and we, and we pray that God bring healing. As far as why we mention Zion and Jerusalem, there's a very powerful idea, right? We, we say, may God console you along with uh, the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Why are we mentioning Zion and Jerusalem? When a person lo loses a loved one, what does that have to do with anything? So I want to share with you a letter that the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote that, that explains the significance of this idea. Very, very powerful text. Donna, please read. Donna Herbert, please read text 9b. Uh, please unmute and read text 9b. In regard to Zion and Jerusalem, the Romans and before them the Babylonians were given dominion only over the wood and stone, silver and gold of the temple's physical manifestation, but not over its inner spiritual essence contained within the heart of each and every Jew. Over this, the nations have no dominion, and it stands eternally. So too, regarding the mourning of the individual, Death dominates only the physical body and concerns of the deceased person. The soul, however, is eternal. It has merely ascended to the world of truth. Thank you. So the Rebbe explains that what's going on here, the reason why we say, the reason why when we comfort one who's experienced the passing of a loved one, the reason why we mention Zion and Jerusalem, who's talking about Zion and Jerusalem now? The deeper reason is because just like when the temple was destroyed, it was only the physical building that was destroyed, but God is not, they can't kill God, right? God and, this, and our spiritual connection with God is not eradicated when you knock down a building, right? The same is true, we believe, when, when, when a person passes away. It's only their body, the physical manifestation that is no longer here, but the spirit is here, the soul is here, and our connection still remains. And that, again, I know it's a repetition or it's a theme that we've been repeating throughout this uh, over the last few weeks, but it's so important in understanding the trajectory of going from acute grief and pain and just, just the tremendous pain of loss to a place of comfort, to a place of consolation and healing, which, again, is a Jewish ideal. Ideally, we move toward that space slowly. We give ourselves time to get to that. But we do move slowly toward that space, a meditation to have something to think about and focus on as we go through this process and move toward, hopefully, toward healing is the idea that just like Zion and Jerusalem, 
It's only the body. It's only the physical that's, that's no longer seen. The spirit is still there. The connection is still there. And this, in fact, is also one of the deeper significances of the tradition that we cited a few moments ago, tearing the garment. I want to share with you a text that is so beautiful. It's so powerful. Rabbi Aaron Moss, he's a modern-day Australian rabbi. He puts this so, so beautifully. Really, really powerful um, expression. Um, let's see. Um, Toba, are you open to reading? All right. Uh, please unmute yourself. Text number 10. Yeah, take it away. Often within their pain, the mourners have an underlying belief that it isn't true, that their loved one hasn't really gone. This is not just denial. In a way, they are right. Death is not an absolute reality. Our souls existed before we were born, and they continue to exist after we die. The souls that have passed on are still with us. We can't see them, but we sense they are there. We can't hear them, but we know that they hear us. On the surface, we are apart. Beyond the surface, nothing can separate us. So we tear our garments. This has a dual symbolism. We are recognizing the loss that our hearts are torn. But ultimately, the body is also only a garment that the soul wears. Death is when we strip off one uniform and take on another. The garment may be torn, but the essence of the person within it is still intact. From our worldly perspective, death is indeed a tragedy, and the sorrow experienced by the mourners is real. But as they tear their garments, we hope that within their pain, they can sense a glimmer of a deeper truth, that souls never die. Thank you. Thank you for, for reading that. It's a, such a beautiful text and very... I find it personally to be very profound and, and very, um, very poignant and, and very healing. The idea, so many different areas of symbolism, I gave one before about the, the tearing of the garment indicating this, the, the, the reality of the loss and the, the triggering of the grief process. Here we have another significance, another idea. And it's different, but it's, it can exist simultaneously, this, this other idea. And that is that a garment is just a garment. We tear the garment, but what's underneath the garment is still there even as a garment is torn. And the message is that death means that the garment was torn. The garment of the body, that, right? That, like I gave the example of the hand and the glove. The garment now is torn. The garment now is, uh, is, um, is no longer. But what's underneath the garment is still there. The soul is still there. And again, this can provide a message of consolation and comfort to those who are um, mourning the loss of, uh, of, of, of a dear loved one. So again, what we're seeing here is that in Jewish mourning observances, it's not just a mitzvah, it's not just tradition, it's not just a thing that we do, you know, a, a way that we do things. There are tangible benefits, tangible ideas and feelings that are conjured up by these observances that can really help us as we, as we um, traverse the landscape of, of this just the profound experience of loss and pain and grief. Um, I want to stop for a moment before we continue. There's a lot more that we're going to talk about today. We have a lot more to cover. 
But I want to stop and, and, and check in and see if there are any questions or comments. I've seen some things pop up in the chat. I'm going to look through them quickly. But feel free to unmute yourself and, uh, and jump in. We'll take just a few minutes now for some questions and comments. Richard, go ahead. Yeah. I don't. I understand it's true, but not in reality. It's that only God can comfort. Yeah. And I, I question that that uh, people can be of great comfort to uh, to a mortar. Right. So I, I question that uh, that's all, that statement. I just. You're you're, you're asking a good question. You, you. It's a good question, and I can't. I I can't. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna double down on what I said because you're right that we can bring each other comfort. You're right. I'm not going to say, no, no, we can't. You're right. You're 100% right. And the biggest proof is if somebody says, no, that person brought me comfort, I'm going to tell them, no, they didn't. <laughs> How could I ever say that? That's to deny their experience. That would be a, a chutzpah. I, I know Jews have chutzpah, but not that level of chutzpah, right? So what I meant to say, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to clarify that by asking the question. I'm, I'm just going to mute you so there's no echo. Um, what I meant to say is that ultimately, ultimately, there's a limit to how much comfort we can bring each other. There's a limit to how much human beings can help each other. And although it is profoundly helpful, and thank God we are not alone in this world. Thank God we do have, um, hopefully, we do have um, uh, support systems and, 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 and envelopes of love that we can you know, fall into. And, and we need, it's so important to have that, and we need that, and it's beneficial. But ultimately... Loss is so big that, that it's only with God's blessing that we really do move on. I mean, yes, we do help each other, and, and I, 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 we can't, can't minimize that. But when we wish each other, right, as humans helping humans, we say, May God comfort you. What we're saying is, I'm here for you, and I love you, and, if you, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm here for you. But at the same time, may God bring you comfort. Because this is, this is I, can, I can only help so far, but it's really God who can help, you know, it, it's, it's, it's God who can truly help with this. Um, I see in the chat the idea of Hamakom, why the name Hamakom? Hamakom is one of the names of God. It means literally space. Why is God called space? Well, God is the, constitutes the space of existence, right? God provides for the space of, of, of life and the planet and the universe and life itself. And so this, I think this idea kind of brings the spiritual and the pragmatic with regards to God in focus. God is not just transcendent, but God is also the very space of our existence. And I think the same idea is true with, with healing and comfort. That we're saying that God's comfort should not just be theoretical and up there in the heavens, but it should be hamakom, it should be in this space as well. It should be a comfort that we can experience and sense, and I hope that is a at least one sufficient answer to explain why we use Hamakum specifically. Um, I noticed there were a few other mics that were unmuted. Um, let's see, Adina Malka, go ahead. When um, you tear your clothes, I mean, do, does the mourner, that person, tear his own clothes, or does the rabbi do it? The, the custom is that the person themselves ideally do it. If they can't, then they're helped. Sometimes people can't do it. It's too much grief. I should mention at this point that there is a modern custom to pin, not a custom, but some have a custom to replace the tearing of the garments with a black ribbon. And I, you could, I, I don't think I need to mention, but you can probably certainly imagine that it's not just that it's not the traditional way to do it, 
but it doesn't have the same effect. And it's not, um, it's like imagine if somebody told you there's a light switch in your home, but I'm giving you a pin that's yellow and that's all you need, right? You'll be like, it's nice to have a pin, but if you don't press the light, the light's not going to go on. So, and I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying this in any other context other than very specifically about the tearing of the garments. You asked about who does it. It's the mourner, ideally. The mourner may need help, though. In many cases, it's not, it's just, it, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming and you can't do it. So it's assisted, the mourners are assisted. But again, my point is that there's power. It's not just tradition. It's not just, you know, tradition for tradition's sake. It's, it's a powerful action that can't be really, it, you can't, it, it, the effect is not the same with the pin. There's something about ripping the garment that makes it real. And that, that really, and, and it brings out this last thing that we said about the meditation of it's only the garment that's ripped, but not, the, not, not what's underneath. Anyway, I think that's enough to mention about that. It's not a focus of the, of the class, but I wanted to just make sure to mention that. Um, okay, uh, let's do one more quick question. Yeah, Mindy, go ahead. Yeah, I just put in the chat, you are not alone, because the, the, when you say, may be comforted among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem, to me that statement also means, it's also comforting to tell the mourner, you're not alone, we've, we've been through this before, you're surrounded right. by loved ones, and right. you're not the only person going through this, you're right. not alone, we're with you. Thank you for sharing that, and that addresses really what Richard was saying, is that even as we say that God is the one who ultimately can bring the true comfort we're still saying that we're with you in pain. And, and by the way, that's uh, just to clarify, I know you're not saying this, but I want to make sure that no one is hearing this on any level. It's very important to, to emphasize that this is not trying to say, I know what you're going through. That's not a sensitive comment to make because every loss is unique and every experience is unique and no two should be you know, conflated for convenience sake or for, um, you know, I can tell you, what the, whatever it is. Every loss is unique and has never been experienced because every human being is unique and every relationship is unique. So there's never been an experience like the one that we experience. Never been an experience before like that, nor will there ever be the exact same experience. And so what we're saying though is not that I know what you're going through or we've also ha had losses like that. That's not what we're saying. We're saying is that we are sharing, we are empathetic and we feel for each other and we're here together in, uh, in, in mourning and, and in sorrow. Okay, now, I, I just want to do a few, a few minutes. I know there's more questions. I'm sure there are more questions. I will stay on after the class, but we still have a lot to get to, and we're, we have still about 11 minutes left, which is good. I want to get through some more ideas that I think are very, very powerful and, um, and relevant. So the first point of our new points, I've lost count of, of our number system already, but let's talk about the next idea. And that is that sometimes, as much as we try, as much as we try and as much time as that passes, we might find ourselves stuck in grief and stuck in, and I'm not, not saying that as a judgment, I'm saying that as a self-judgment, a person might say, I still feel stuck and I still feel the pain and I still can't breathe and it's searing, and it's, it's suffocating, and I can't move, and I certainly can't move on, and I'm stuck. So the question is, is there any Jewish guidance, Torah guidance, Jewish wisdom that can help us 
when grief feels to us as overwhelming for ourselves. So as we open up this discussion, it's a very important and practical discussion. Let's explore, I just want to do this, just a few ideas about this. It's not going to treat this, this subject sufficiently, but just a few ideas and meditations to think about from a Jewish perspective. Oftentimes what keeps us stuck in a very acute sense of pain and, and grief is the notion of anger and injustice. When we are angry about the loss of a loved one and we feel like it's not right. Especially this is true when dealing, when, when speaking about, God forbid, a tragic death. All deaths are tragic, but one that we might consider to be especially tra- tragic again if we were to use such terms such as when, God forbid, a child passes away or, God forbid, somebody in their prime passes away or, God forbid, when it's been preceded by uh, severe illness and suffering or when it's unexpected. In any of these cases, all loss is tragic and all loss is unfathomable. But as you, and, as you and I have experienced, there are losses that just feel like it cuts deeper and it evokes a sense of anger. Why did someone so young pass away? Why like that? Why with so much pain? They had more to do. They had more life to live. Why did I lose out? Why not me instead? These are questions that we might have asked ourselves. And they might resonate. They might sound familiar to you as they do to me. So I'd like to share a story, and I'm going to read this story. It's a very long story. It's a story from the Talmud. Again, we're sharing Jewish wisdom on on dealing with with grief and and, and pain. And here's a story about a rabbi who was dealing with a very, very acute sense of of grief and pain and how um, a colleague of his helped with his um, grieving process. I'm going to share the screen, and we're going to open up to text number 11. Um, here we go. This is uh, from, I'm sorry, from Avot the Rabbi Natan. It's from a Midrashic source, but from the era of the mission in the Talmud. I'm going to read it. Uh, it's a quite long, so stay with me. When the son of, this, okay, so we're talking about the, the passing of a child. When the son of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakeh passed away, his students arrived to console him. Just to mention parenthetically, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaki was one of the greatest sages of Jewish history. He was the one who, according to the Talmud, rescued Judaism when the temple, second temple was destroyed by securing a space for Torah study to continue and Judaism to continue even as the Romans destroyed the temple. That's a story for itself, but know that this rabbi was not just one of the rabbis, but was the leading rabbi of his time who lost his son. Rabbi Eliezer, his student, entered and sat before him. Master, he said, would you like me to share a thought? Speak, he responded. Rabbi Eliezer said, Adam had a son who died and he allowed himself to be consoled. How do we know that he accepted consolation? For it is stated, Adam was again intimate with his wife, which indicates that he was at some point, he resumed his life and was consoled. So you should also allow yourself to be consoled. Rabbi Yochanan, the teacher, retorted, is it not enough that I am grieving my own loss? that you have to make me feel pain for Adam as well? <laughs> How are you helping me? You're telling me that Adam also lost a, lost a son. <laughs> now I feel my, my own pain, and I feel Adam's pain. I know what he went through. Rabbi Yeshua entered, the next student, and he asked, would you like me to share a thought? Speak, he responded. Rabbi Yeshua said, Job had sons and daughters, and they all died in a single day, yet he allowed himself to be consoled. So you should also accept consolation. I'm going to skip the verse, the proof text, because we have a lot to get to still. 
Rabbi Yochanan retorted, Is it not enough that I am grieving my own loss, that you make me feel pain for Job as well? All right, same idea. Rabbi Yossi entered and sat before him. Can I share a thought? Yes. Okay, Rabbi Yossi said, Aaron had two illustrious sons, but they both died in a single day, and yet he allowed himself to be consoled. Let's continue. Rabbi Yochanan retorted, Is it not enough that I am grieving my own loss, that you, make, that you have to make me feel pain for Aaron as well? Rabbi Shimon entered. Same deal. Rabbi Shimon said, King David had a son who died, and he allowed himself to be consoled. So should you. Rabbi Yochanan retorted. Again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Is it not enough that I am grieving my own loss that you have to make me feel pain for King David as well? Finally, number five, the fifth student, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach entered. Rabbi Elazar ben Arach was known to be, by his teacher, as the one who knew how to speak to him. So already when Elazar ben Arach entered, the rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan, said to his assistant, he, he, when he saw him, he told his attendant, grab a set of clothing for me and be prepared to follow me to the bathhouse. For Rabbi Elazar is a great person and I will not be able to hold out in the face of his comforting words. In other words, this is going to get me out of bed. Right? So get ready to, <laughs> to, get ready for the for, to help me uh, bathe. Rabbi Elazar entered, so he, the student entered, sat before his teacher, and he told him, Let me share a parable. Your situation is similar to that of an individual to whom the king entrusted an article for safekeeping. Each day the man would weep and wail in fear. Woe is to me. When will I emerge unharmed from this safekeeping role? It was stressful to hold something from the king because you're afraid that you might lose it or damage it. So it's stressful. You, master, also had a son. He was fluent in the Torah, prophet, scriptures, and the mission of the halacha, exegetical teachings, and he passed from this world without sin. You should certainly accept consolation, for you have returned your deposit in perfect condition. Rabbi Yochanan responded, Rabbi Lazar, my son, you have comforted me, you have comforted me in a most humane fashion. And I think it goes with, I think it's, it's self-evident why the other students did not bring about comfort. Because to tell a person who's mourning a loss that someone else had a loss, how does that help me? Right? You're, you're telling me that somebody else went through tragedy? So, so what? That should make me feel better somehow? That someone else also had the tragedy? Now I'm feeling there's more tragedy in the world. How does that help? But the last, the last student, Elizabeth Arach, he says something else. He says that life is a gift. And it's a really a gift with no expectations. Because none of us here, none of us who ever lived, we don't know how long we have. No one was told how long we have. We don't know. A person doesn't know whether they have a, whether they have a minute, an hour, a day, a year, 10 years, 40 years, 80 years, or 100 years, or 120 years. No one knows how long we have. But we believe this. This is what Judaism teaches. That life is a gift entrusted to us for safekeeping by God. And we do our best to take care of it. We do our best to preserve the life that we have, to take care of ourselves and our health, and to do a good job, to be good custodians of this unparalleled gift that we have. And when the time comes, it is the depositor taking back the deposit. And there's a sense of comfort in knowing that we did the best that we could and that we lived a good life. And specifically speaking to those who are left behind, 
It is comfort to know that our loved ones lived a good life. And even if we think their lives were tragically cut short, the depositor took back the deposit at the time that he deemed to be appropriate. We don't know that time. And no one knows that time. And no one can know that time. And honestly, probably no one wants to know that time. I don't know if that would help. I don't know if that would help. But here's what we know. We know that our loved ones lived their lives and, and, and lived their divine lives as a gift from God. And that may, on some level, this meditation that helped Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai in the, the text that we just read, this can help us as well. It's important not to compare losses. You know, why did my loved one go this way when that, loved one, when that person's loved one went a different way? We don't compare losses. Um, life is a gift. Life is a deposit. And no life goes unfulfilled. We don't know what it means to be fulfilled, but we believe that God takes the deposit back when the time is deemed to be appropriate. Another thing that I want to mention quickly is how do we deal with guilt? Oftentimes, there is guilt on, on the side of, 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 of those who, who are still alive. Guilt of, I should have said something else, or I should have done something else, or guilt over the last conversation that we had, or the last conversation that we should have had that we didn't have. Yeah, unfinished business. Unfinished business. And... And how do we deal with that guilt? I'm just going to go back to what we said last week, which I think is very powerful. And I mentioned it before as well. We're still connected and there's still a relationship. And as Judaism teaches us, our tradition teaches us, it's not too late to connect, to have that conversation. And even more so, it's not too late to even improve the relationship. If the relationship didn't end or when the person passed, if, it, if it, the relationship wasn't where we wanted it to be, there's a way to improve the relationship. And maybe it's different. Maybe it's not through flowers, chocolate, breakfast in bed, or a favorite restaurant. Maybe it's not through those means. It's through other means. There are other ways to connect, other ways to give spiritual gifts. I need to share with you a very powerful text. I'm going to read this one as well. Um, very powerful text, number 12, from uh, Rabbi Aaron of Karlin, a Hasidic master, mystic, Kabbalist. He says, when children say Kaddish for their parents, it's like sending regards. When they learn a chapter of Mishnah on their behalf, it's like sending a letter. And when they do mitzvot and good deeds for the benefit of their loved one's souls, it's like sending them an entire parcel. So regards, letter, or a package, right? It's not that we're ranking, but there is a bit of a ranking here. Kaddish is regards, Mishnah, Torah study is a letter. Doing a mitzvah, especially giving tzedakah, that's, uh, that's a full-on package. And this way we can give spiritual gifts to our loved ones. I want to conclude, I know we're right at the time, maybe even a minute over the time. I want to conclude with something very important. And that is the final point, I'm going to do this very quickly, which is how do we give comfort to others? Until now we've been speaking about our own journeys of grieving and mourning and finding comfort and consolation and ultimately healing.
But how do we help others? What can we do? We talked about before, about the line that we say, the line of consolation. The, the most important thing to know about helping, being, being of comfort and consolation, giving consolation to others, or being there for others, is simply that, that the best thing that you and I can do is to simply be there for the other. Be there, whether it's, well, I mean, it's pandemic, it's Shiva is not the same, and it's, uh, Shiva has become Zoom Shiva. We do the best that we can with, with the reality that we have, but it's being there, whether it's in person when we can, or on the phone, or over Zoom, or text message. There's no wrong way to connect. There's no wrong way to connect. It's better to connect in a wrong way, so to speak. I say that with air quotes and euphemistically and not literally than to not connect at all. If we can't find the perfect way to connect that we would like, the ideal way, it's better to do it however we can and whatever opportunity we can. It's a statement of I am there for you. I'm thinking about you. I care about you. I love you. And, 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 and I am simply with you. In fact, Jewish protocol has it that when we go to a Shiva house, other than that line which talks about God comforting the mourners, there's no, there's no specific thing that we're meant to say. In fact, many rabbis have said the best thing that we can do is actually not say anything. I mean, not in an awkward way, but to listen and to just be there and to follow the lead of, of the mourners. Whatever they want to talk about, we talk about. It's not like making them feel better through jokes and banter and, hey, politics and sports. It's about just being there and listening and, 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 and no philosophizing, no questioning, you know, intrusive questioning. It's about simply being there in a sensitive way. And that's the final point that I wanted to mention about how we can be of consolation to others in, in, in their time of loss and grief. So in conclusion, to wrap up today's conversation, which we spoke about a lot of things, a lot of ideas, a lot of big ideas that we kind of jam-packed into one session, really could use a lot of unpacking for each of us in our own lives to try to reflect on the ideas that we spoke about. I'll try to summarize them over the next 30 seconds. Today we spoke about the experience, not of the soul who has transitioned, but of we who are left behind. And even as we know their soul lives on, for us, there's a real sense of grief, of pain, and of loss. And we are commanded by Torah commanded in Judaism to mourn. Mourning is a process, and with God's help, we're able to re-enter life once again. Changed, certainly, but re-enter life. The Jewish perspective on life and death we discussed can help us work through the mourning process and come out strong, although not the same, but strong on the other side. Sometimes we make it stuck in grief. We should never judge ourselves nor judge ourselves relative to someone else, but rather work on our own to integrate these ideas and others um, within to integrate them uh, about divine justice and destiny and souls and life, the meaning of life and connections to try to help us through that process. Knowing that life is a deposit can help us. Knowing that we're still in a relationship with our loved ones can help us. And uh, comforting the mourners, as we discussed at the end, is a tremendous mitzvah. It's important to do that in a sensitive way, in a loving way, in a caring way, to just be there for the other. In the final analysis, like Mindy said before, at the end of the day, we are not alone. And it's so important that we, are, that we be there for each other 
in our moments of, of need, in our moments of pain. Please, God, may God indeed comfort all of us, all of us. You can't go through life without a broken heart. It's not possible. It's not possible. You can't go through life without loving and losing, without feeling pain and loss, without having gaping holes in our hearts, and without the scarring that is born of that. What we can do, what we can do is take these messages from our tradition, our beautiful 3,300-year tradition, and appreciate the wisdom that it brings to us, not only the, the philosophical insights, but the practical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual guidance that it gives us, and embrace it on our journeys toward healing. May we, may, may we truly find comfort and consolation, and may we truly bring honor to those whom we've loved and lost. And let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me tonight for lesson number three of Journey of the Soul. Um, I look forward to seeing you next week. A quick note about next week's class. The topic is where we go. Next week, we turn back to the experience of the soul. And we're going to, we're going to focus on the experience of the afterlife. After the soul transitions, like we said last week, out of the body. After that transition happens, what is the soul's experience like? What does the soul experience and how does that experience go for the soul? Where does it go? Does Judaism believe in heaven and hell? What is the role of Kaddish? These topics will be explored next week in our fourth lesson. Don't miss it. As always, feel free to invite a friend, especially somebody who you know these classes would be meaningful to. You can always share the recaps and the audio. And uh, the idea is that we are here for each other and that these ideas, these teachings can be tremendously beneficial. Thank you again for joining me tonight. Um, we'll formally close out the class. I'm staying on to answer questions. I also will mention a few announcements, but thank you again for joining me. All right, a few quick announcements, and then I'm going to open up the floor for questions and comments. Number one, we have an upcoming event called the Jewish Gemstones Series, Royalty and Redemption, an opportunity to engage in beautiful boutique craft jewelry making at home with a custom kit that is pertaining to themes of upcoming holidays, Purim and Passover. You can find out more information on our website, website intownjewishacademy.org. We also have an, an event that's not yet been released. It's called Kabbalah of the Future with a mystic and futurist. It is going to be an incredible event and conversation. Stay tuned for more information. We also have a Jewish art workshop, Paint at Home, Think Bob Ross, but Jewish Bob Ross paintings at home. Um, an evening of, of painting and spirituality at home. You'll get a kit with your own supplies and be guided on a two-hour journey toward creating your own masterpiece that you will proudly hang in your own home. And that is upcoming next month in March. Stay tuned for more information. And finally, last but, but certainly not least, we have the incredible merit and honor of welcoming a Holocaust survivor into our community through Zoom virtually. Um, the event is titled Faith and Fortitude. The, uh, the, the, the woman who is speaking, her name is Mrs. Marion Blumenthal Lazan. She is the mother of David Lazan, who is joining us here tonight. David's mom is a survivor and, uh, and, and a speaker who's spoken to over a million people about her story worldwide, um, about survival and triumph in the face of, of, of the horrors of the Holocaust. 
Her message is truly unforgettable and truly uplifting. And so I invite everybody to join us. The date is Sunday, March 14th, and you can find out, again, more information about this on our website, intownjewishacademy.org. You don't want to miss that historic evening that is coming up next month. All right, announcements out of the way. Let's get back to the class and conversations about it. I'm here to address questions. Doreen, I think you had your mic on um, unmuted before to ask questions, so feel free to unmute and jump right in. The floor is yours. Yeah. This was, um, it's from a book um, from Rabbi Yisrael Miller. In this one paragraph. Doreen, you're cutting out a little bit, and um, I think maybe your connection is a little bit, it's a little bit glitching on us. So. helpful for me. It says that seven things are regulation more strength to accept move on and I think that's the consolation and comfort are two different things to me uh, so you yes. cut you cut out a little bit you cut out a little bit but I would agree I only heard your conclusion I, that comfort I, and consolation I, are a little bit it helps me at a time and I like it we'll try to drown in pity yeah yeah so I I, I agree that there there is nuances between the two yeah Between consolation and comfort, Correct. there's a difference. Yeah, yeah. We there's... can comfort, for me, right. I can help, I could comfort someone, hopefully. Right. The consolation, the really big thing, right. comes from... Comes from Hashem, God. from a bigger source, yeah, yeah. I would agree, I would agree. Thank you, thank you for sharing that, even in the wording, where we might differentiate those two ideas. Um, okay, and other questions, comments, please unmute and jump right in. Hello. Yes. Yeah. Jody, is that you? Yeah. Okay. So, going back to um, the Hamako, the consolation script at nine a. Yeah. Okay. So for years, it's always been so awkward to make a shiva call because the little signs up behind the mourners sitting in their chair. You know, and it's in Hebrew and it's in English. And you're supposed to get up and go over and say your goodbye and then this sentence and then walk out. And on one hand, it like makes it easy to say goodbye. And on the other hand, it feels just so contrived. It feels forced, so yeah. I yeah. loved hearing what they had to say about this. Yeah. But so I loved hearing, is there anything further or more about it? Or is really simply, yes. that's what this is. Yes, that's it. yes, yes, yes. There's a lot of deep insight. And the Rebbe wrote a lot about this. I'll tell you the context. I believe the context was to Arik Sharon. Remember Ariel Sharon? Uh, yeah? Yeah. General Prime Minister. So um, the, the, Ariel Sharon lost the son in the 19, I think it was the 1980s uh, or, or 70s. I forget when, when he lost the son. The Rebbe wrote him a letter of consolation, and in that letter, he explained the line of Hamakom Yenachim Eschem. He explained that line on multiple dimensions, and one, I, one we talked about before in one of the texts. There was another one that we skipped that, um, if I share my screen again, I'll just point out, and you can look at it on your own in your book. So um, it is, let's see, it is text number... 
Um, oh, maybe it's one of the appendix. One second. It might be appendix B. Yeah. Uh, text 18, appendix B, page 118 in your books. Um, the Rebbe explains the idea of mentioning Zion and Jerusalem. So he, he really breaks down all of the elements. I, I'm not going to read it now. You can read it on your own, and, and, and you'll find, I think you'll find it meaningful. Um, in that letter, the Rebbe really breaks down that line. And I, but I, I really, really resonate. I really connect with, with what you said at the opening, which is it can feel so forced and awkward and contrived. And I don't know if awkward... It, I, it, it sometimes can feel not loving and not endearing and not comforting. It feels like oh, I'm going to recite a line and then, and then go. But it's really not meant to be like that. It's meant to be, we're meant to be there with, with the other. And we're meant to just, just be and just listen and just talk and just connect. And then we say, sincerely, may God comfort you. May God bring comfort, the comfort that you need, the comfort that we all need. May God, may God bring healing. And, and, and it's meant to be truly like that, a simple line that comes from the heart. But you know the way it is, sometimes when there's a formula, when there's a line, it can become forced and it become, especially if it's in a different language, you know, and people, it's hard, sometimes it's hard to, to get the words out even. It feels a little, I, I, I relate and I, I've, I've been there and I've, I've, I can relate to, 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 what, to what you pointed out. I think the more we learn about it and the more we, we understand it, perhaps the more, more, um, the more um, emotive and heartfelt it would be. Yeah, this yeah. definitely brought a whole new meaning so that the next time... And yeah. I refused to make a Zoom Shiva call because I didn't even know how to leave the call or how right. to get out of it because right. I'm so awkward on the computer to begin with. Right. That I thought right. I'm not even putting myself in that position. I'll right. text somebody or call them, but I'm right. not going on Zoom because of the ending is so awkward. Right. But this has really brought like a whole new meeting. But I look forward to reading um, text yeah. 18. Yeah, yeah, take a look at that one. Um, okay. okay, thank you. My pleasure, of course, of course. Um, let's see, Lisa. Lisa, you had your hand. Oh no, sorry, that was my hand. <laughs> As my hand is making a hand on on, on your uh, on your box. Sorry. Um, Let's see. Um, wait, Howard. Um, okay. Let's let's go to Sylvia. Well, I'm seeing Sylvia and Howard. Are, are you are, are you Howard? Or are you uh, Calvin? Howard. Howard. Oh, Howard. Yeah, Howard. Okay. Yeah, Howard. Well, I just wanted to say that if rabbi means teacher, then you are a wonderful teacher. Thank you. Great communicator. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. It's, it's a privilege to listen to you, frankly. Thank you. I, I, um, I'm, I'm very humbled by that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, um, my mother is, uh, is clapping, so I think she, she also liked you saying that. Thank you. Uh, Mindy, go ahead. I just wanted to share, I've shared this before in a previous class, um, something that meant a lot to me when my father first passed away. Someone who came to Shiva told me, and it's it's like when you said, uh, what it says, it's like sending them a letter, sending them a parcel, like when you when the child performs mitzvot, it's like sending them a parcel. Um, someone shared with me a story that 
your loved one who just passed is unable to to perform any any more mitzvahs. Their right. time on earth is done, and they're unable to perform any more mitzvahs. So, picture an amphitheater of a thousand seats, and the mitzvah that your loved one performed during their lifetime put them in row 500, let's just say, row 500 out of a thousand, and Hashem is in the middle. And every time a child, I'm gonna cry, but, but every time a child performs mitzvot, it puts the, the, the soul of that parent in row 499, row 498, row 497, and they get closer and closer to Hashem because of the mitzvot that the child performs in yeah. this lifetime. Yeah. So it elevates the soul of that parent immeasurably and that that helped me that was so comforting to me at that time to just think that every time I do a mitzvah I think of my father and I, I say it that I'm doing it in his name and he's moving up to row 499 row 498 and just get, getting closer to they'll him. have to create more rows with all the mitzvahs that, that that you're doing and that we all do right but <laughs> Look, look, it's, um, it, it's, it's true, and it, 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 it speaks to the text that we read from Aaron of Karlin. When we do a mitzvah, it's like the greatest gift that we can give because, like we've said, and, and we, I, I went through it quickly at the end of the class, but to kind of tie together that point with what we said at the beginning of the class, um, the reality is that the loss, the loss is not the soul is lost. The soul is still around. The soul is still here even more than before right, unencumbered by a body, what's missing is the soul's ability to do a mitzvah. But we could do a mitzvah, right? We still can do a mitzvah. As long as we're here with a body, we can do a mitzvah. And when we do it on behalf of our parents or grandparents or loved ones, whatever, who, friends, loved ones, when we do it in their merit, it's not a game. It's a real thing. The reason why I'm doing this is, is in their merit. That means that essentially... Their spirit is the catalyst for this good deed, which means that they are still affecting the physical world even without their own body. We become their hands and feet. It's such a gift. Talk about a gift that we can give to our loved ones who are no longer here. The greatest gift is a mitzvah. And like I mentioned before, parenthetically, the greatest gift, it's brought down in, in, in the books. That's, it's, it's in the... Um, the Yizgar prayer, specific, specifically the mitzvah of tzedakah, there's a, there's a tremendous benefit. Every mitzvah is beneficial and every area of Torah study is beneficial in the merit. But specifically, tzedakah is the catalyst. They tell a joke. Ugh, I'm, I don't even want to say this, but I don't know. I can't stop myself. You know me and jokes and bad jokes. They tell, it, they, they tell a story. All right, it's going to be a joke. I'm letting you in on it. They tell a story about a, a soul who is, uh, who is in heaven. And one day, the angels come and say, hey, you got an upgrade. Yeah, an upgrade. That, come into the elevator. You're going up to even a higher height. He gets in the elevator. He says, can I ask why? Like, what happened? How did I win the lottery today? He says, well, your kids wrote a check to tzedakah. Oh, they gave tzedakah. Fantastic. So he goes up. A day later, they say, come, come with us. Has the elevator. Take him back down. He says, what's going on? Check bounced. Anyway, it's a joke. It's a terrible joke. But uh, yeah, it's, it, the premise of the joke is based on the idea that we can benefit tremendously. And it's not just about you know, lifting up souls. or it, It's really about also the impact that we make on the world. And it's, we, 
a soul can't make an impact in the world after the body is no longer there, but it can if we choose to give it that, that gift. That's the gift that we give. We give a gift and we give the gift of giving the gift. Um, other questions and comments, these very, very important uh, topics. Let's see, Richard, jump right in. A quick question, do you, do, you have to be, do you have to be specific when you're doing mentioning, this is for my father, this is for my mother, or they're just a crew and they're married without even stating Excellent question. So in, ge in general, when we do a mitzvah, it's our mitzvah. In general, when we, when, if I do a mitzvah, it's my mitzvah. I'm doing a mitzvah. What we're talking about now is when it's a mitzvah that we're not just doing, we're not doing a mitzvah that, that we're doing anyway. I'm doing this mitzvah that maybe I would not have done. I'm doing it for... The based on the inspiration and the honor and merit of this loved one, right? Of my loved one. Which means that the sole existence of this mitzvah is due to this other person. If, that, if, that, if, that, if not for that person, this mitzvah would not necessarily have been done. So I'm not saying we can't um, double dip, let's say, on a mitzvah. Say I'm doing it and I'm also doing it in the merit of. It's also okay. But there's also a special thing about doing a mitzvah that we wouldn't ordinarily do. We're doing it exclusively for the merit of a loved one that makes it really all about them. We are just almost the tools for, to allow them to... It's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like we're delivering a gift. I don't know if that's right. If, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It's, um, it's not our mitzvah. I mean, we're doing it, but we're doing it on behalf of, uh, of, of, of our loved ones who physically can't do it, but we can do it for them. So yeah, you, so, in, so what I'm trying to say is anything that we do, we could always have in mind, but there are things that we can do specifically with that exclusive intention, and then it would, it, it, we should be intentional about it. We should be mindful about it. It doesn't mean the whole time you're doing it, you're thinking you know, constantly, but the general sense of I'm doing this for the sake of, a general declaration. Uh, of intent within oneself or, you know, put it out there as well. Um, okay. Mark. Yeah, great class. Thank I you. Had, had, a, had, a, had a few questions I have to put in chat because I can read them too. Uh, the first was, was, did Jacob tear his clothes to mourn or to symbolize what he believed had happened to Joseph. Interesting, interesting. Right, he believed that his son was torn up by the wild animal, so he tore his own clothes. Was it reflective or was it mournful? So I'll tell you, you're asking a good question. I don't know that I have the answer to your specific question, but I will say that in Jewish tradition, this is brought down as a source for the custom of tearing one's clothing with, in response to any loss, to any loss. In other words, not, it doesn't matter the manner of that, passing, any loss would be accompanied by the, the, the rending, the, the tearing of the garments. I two more. Sure. The second is, is there Sorry for not reading them. I apologize. That's it. Guilty as charged. Is there a reason why, uh, was it, uh, uh, what's this greeting? The, the, uh, the H-Y-E thing, that's what, uh, Hamaku uh, Minachem yeah, how about him? Is there a reason they all end in final in final men? 
Hamakom Yenachem Eschem. I don't know. Good question. The first three, the first three, the first three words end in a final mem. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. There may be a significance. It's good. Interesting. And okay, then the third thing I wanted to ask you was, when do you say Bruch Dayan Emes versus Hamakom Yenachem Eschem? Excellent. Thank you for thank you for asking that because I did not mention Baruch Dayana Emes, and it's very important. So Baruch Dayana Emes means blessed is the true judge, and that is recited when hearing about or when being confronted with the news of the reality of the passing of a loved one. We say Baruch Dayana Emes, just like we bless God, not thank, we bless God for the the good things that we have, we bless God for the loss that we experience. Again, it's not saying, oh, thank you for the, it's not, it's not saying thank you, you know, it's, it's, it's blessing God, it's acknowledging that this is, this is, the depositor has taken back his deposit, which, by the way, is the truest thing we can say. Why this, all of the other stuff is theorizing and, 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 and you know, philosophizing. But the one thing we can say is, God has taken back this, this soul. That's, that's what happened. And that's what Baruch Dina Emes is, acknowledging that God has taken back um, the soul of our loved one. Um, that is said immediately upon the experience and the news of, of the passing. Um, the, the, the statement of comfort is only said to them from others to the mourners when the shiva begins, which is after the burial. Does that make sense? Right, because we, as, if you remember, in the, in the initial stage of Aninut, there is no, we're, our, our role is not to make things better. Our role is never to make things better, but we're not even, we're not, we're not, there's no comfort then. It's, it's, it's a focus on, 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 on the mitzvah of, of laying our loved one to rest and, and being, you know, helping in whatever way for that mitzvah. It's not about consolation, comfort. It's, it's, that's not the theme. So Baruch Dana MS acknowledges the, the, the reality of, of the experience. And then when the shiva begins, then we begin to, to offer words of consolation as we discussed. But thank you for asking that because I did not mention that phrase. Baruch Daina Emes. It's three words. Um, yeah, that's traditionally recited. Okay. Pleasure. Okay. Um, Rabbi? Yes. I was wondering, what does the word Aninut mean? Is that Hebrew? Um, yeah, I think it is. Onen is the... Aninut is the stage. On, on, onan or Onen is the... Um, is the name of the, is, describes the person in that state. Um, I don't know the Shoresh. I, I don't know the, um, I can look it up. I can try to look it up and send you, send you something about that. But I'm, I'm, the, the, the etymology, the source of the language on it is, is eluding me right now. But it's, it, I believe it's Hebrew. I don't think it's Aramaic. I believe it's Hebrew. What, what does it mean? Just if you translate it to English? I, it's referring to the state, to that initial state. I don't know the, the literal meaning of it. I'm not sure. I'm not okay. sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to do a little research into it and see if I can clarify that and send you, send, send you something on that. 
just, yeah. just a language thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. I understand, yeah. No, I, I understand the question. I'll try to look that up. Um, okay. Pleasure, of course, of course. All right, it's good to see everybody, and thank you for joining me tonight. And uh, may we all experience the blessings in our lives and take them and appreciate the blessings that we have and not take anything for granted, not take any moment that we have on this, uh, on this, pla on this earth with our bodies. Let us not take any of it for granted. Let us remain um, heartfelt of our blessings, mindful of our loved ones, and ever sensitive to those who are experiencing um, loss and grief. Thank you. Have a wonderful week and lots of blessings. We'll see you soon. That's cool. Pleasure. Take care. Bye, everybody.